but it's such a pleasure. I've been so looking forward to this time with you all. I'm thankful uh, that you are allowing me to come and stand here and say things to you. Thank you so much. Um, I really do enjoy and just respect this church so much because you keep showing up in places. And so Simeon Trust Workshop, um, I already know people. I've met people in this room at that workshop. Uh, Simeon Trust online groups. You asked me to come and say things to you on the video. You just love God's word. You love the word of God, and that reputation precedes you. You are women who love God's word. Um, and so I respect you for that, and I'm thankful to be with you all at this retreat. So thank you so, so much. Um, thank you, Jerry, and my homegirl, Emily, <laughs> uh, and new friends that I've met today that I'm going to look at when no one else is smiling. That's my corner. So, <laughs> um, so it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, we are going to look at God's word today. We are going to be, I know that our theme for this weekend is steadfast, and you've already had an excellent teaching from Lamentations 3. Uh, we're continuing that same theme, but we will be in Exodus 2. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to, uh, verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10. Uh, my talk today has a title. If you've done Simeon Trust workshops, you know we like to have a title that helps to sum up uh, the argument. And so my title today is What Threat is Strong Enough? I'm going to read Exodus 2, 1 to 10. I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll see, we'll see how the Lord uh, instructs us through this passage. Let me put this right here. Okay. So Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with pitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, 
thank you for loving us so much that you have left us with inscribed words through which we can see ourselves, but above all, through which we can see our Lord. We're praying that you would use the words that we will hear today and by the power of your spirit, work in us and help us to be women who trust you more and women who love you more and women who even love each other more as a result. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Sisters, perhaps there are some of you in the room who have had experiences with hurricanes. You have experienced a hurricane firsthand. Uh, others of us, we haven't been in a hurricane firsthand, but we can still imagine the terror of these storms. I want to tell you about one devastating hurricane. It was a mid-August day in 2017. Hurricane Harvey struck coastal Texas. This was a category four hurricane. It had 108 miles, gusting winds and pounding rains. And it tore apart entire communities, um, including the town of Rockport, Texas. Uh, there were homes and properties and trees that were literally uprooted and destroyed. And yet, amid all this devastation, there stood one giant oak tree, strong, unmovable, tall, and determined. This tree has a name. They call it the Big Tree of Rockport. It's nearly 45 feet tall, and it is one of the largest oak trees in America. Um, you would think that its size would actually make it a quick target because uh, taller, larger trees are actually more vulnerable to high winds. Uh, and yet, the big tree has this center of gravity and this massive root system that has kept it standing for close to 2,000 years. Yes, this tree is actually older than this country itself. Um, it has faced numerous hurricanes and storms during its lifetime, and yet no threat has yet to overcome the big tree. Uh, the big tree today is fenced, uh, and it literally prevails as a symbol of endurance for the people of Rockport, Texas. Sisters, the author of Exodus 2, 1 to 10, writes to point to someone much greater than any Category 4 hurricane, and even much greater than a 2,000-year-old determined, unmovable tree. The author's argument in this passage is this. Whatever the threat, God's covenant promises prevail. His purpose of salvation stands, and it cannot be overcome by the greatest forces. This is good news for you and me today. Because we know that the last few years have brought some fierce storms for some of us. Uh, there's been winds of loss and anxieties and sorrows and loneliness and even death and distress at a global level, at a national level, and even personal levels. There's been pain in our families and in our churches, our places of work, even pain in our bodies. 
And this can threaten our joy. It can threaten our peace, our sense of security, even our hope. Sisters, Exodus 2, 1 to 10, offers this encouragement to us this morning. Whatever the threat, God's covenant promises prevail. His purposes of salvation cannot be overcome. Exodus 2, 1 to 10 is a narrative, and it has a suspenseful plot arc. I want to retell this story to us this morning in four parts. I'll tell, you, I'll tell it to you in this way. We'll look at the threat in verses 1 and 2, the threat in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll look at the arc in verse 3, the arc in verse 3. And then we'll look at the plot twist in verses nine or verses four through nine. The plot twist in verses four through nine and then the child in verse 10. So let's begin with the threat, verses one to two. I will read it for us. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Verse one of this passage sounds like the wedding announcement of two private people. <clears throat> Maybe the kind of couple who would rather share updates through a family group chat than make public announcements on Facebook. The narrator doesn't give details. You'll notice that names are not even mentioned here. An unidentified Levite man takes an unnamed Levite woman as his wife. But ladies, there's something called literary context. Literary context are just the words around our passage. And literary context, context acts like a friend to us in this passage. It opens up that family group chat and we get the scoop on who this family is. According to Exodus 6.20, this unnamed man and woman is Amram and Jacobed. They are the parents of at least two other children before the baby who was born in this passage. There is an elder daughter mentioned in verse four of our text, and she's identified to us as Mariam in Exodus 15, 20. And there's also a son named Aaron. And Exodus 7, 7 suggests that Aaron is three years old at the, at the start or at the time of this story. So Jacobed is not a new, a new mother. She's not a new mom here. And yet there is something very different happening at the birth of this newest baby. You see, Exodus 2, 1 to 10, is the second of a two-part drama. Part 1 is found in Exodus 1. And that chapter blows a raging storm of threats against Israel. Exodus chapter 1 opens with an obituary. Joseph and all his brothers are dead. This, this was the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Basically, every human character we met in the book of Genesis is dead at the start of Exodus. How would this impact the covenant promises God had made to them in the book of Genesis? God had promised to give Abraham a blessed nation 
in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This was going to be a countless, numberless people ultimately settled in their own land. This promise is no known as the Abrahamic covenant, and it is major in salvation history. God's promise to Abraham was to unfold and build until it reversed the curse, bringing a blessing that would eventually spread to all the nations of the earth. But this was in Genesis. The promise was made back then. Will it prevail here in Exodus? And to thicken the plot, there's this crafty pharaoh who is sitting on the throne of Egypt. And he literally wears a crown with a raised serpent. And just like a, a snake, he is determined to swallow Israel. He tries to subdue Israel's population with ruthless enslavement and with hard labor. He even commands two midwives to kill baby boys at birth. The storm is raging against God's people in Exodus 1. And yet, three times we read that amazing conjunction, but. Verse 7, the patriarchs are dead, but Israel multiplies. Verse 12, a ruthless king enslaves, but Israel multiplies. And verse 17, the king commands death, but the midwives fear God, and they multiply. Sisters, whatever the threat God's word prevails. His covenant promises to Abraham are not overcome in Exodus 1. And yet, the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. The three buts are followed by a then. Look at verse 22 of Exodus 1. I'll read it for us. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So enslavement and the local midwifery practice failed Pharaoh, and so he pulls out a plan C. He turns to his own people with this death order. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Surely his own people wouldn't fail him, right? Would God's covenant promises continue to withstand the storm of this crafty king? This is the question Exodus 2, 1 to 10, our passage must answer. So sisters, our friend context has shown us that the threat is real in our passage. There is trouble for this Levite man and this Levite woman. Surely the day Jochebed found out she was pregnant, it was an anxious day for her. Pharaoh's war against her, her people had found its target in her womb. Maybe she prayed every day for a daughter. Or perhaps she prayed for courage if it were a son. But the day of her labor comes, and it ends with a baby boy in her arms. A son in Israel was a gift to celebrate under normal circumstances. The members of the house of Levi would have rejoiced to see her baby boy. 
but the threat of a serpentine king was not normal circumstances. And so she hid her baby for three months. We have a three-month-old baby in the room. <laughs> and um, 18 months ago, my own family welcomed a three-week baby boy into our home through foster care. And I remember those first few months with that baby boy. A routine diaper change brought screams that the neighbors would hear. I can't imagine hiding a newborn baby. They are noisy and they are needy people. Jacobet's ability to keep her boy from Pharaoh's radar testifies to her determination to preserve his life. No doubt this mama was motivated by love. But Exodus 2.2 suggests something more. It says that Jacobet saw that her son was a fine child. The New Testament in Acts 7.20 interprets this verse as a child beautiful in God's sight. It makes me wonder, did Jacobet recognize something in the infant that gave her hope? See, theologians suggest that most Israelite mothers and fathers remembered another earlier promise at the birth of their children. God promised an offspring in Genesis 3.15, a seed who would be born to crush the head of Eden's serpent and reverse the curse of the fall. In fact, the Bible shows one father recalling this salvation promise at the birth of his son. Noah's dad, Lamech, says this of Noah in Genesis 5.29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this child shall bring us relief from the work of our hands. He shall bring us uh, relief from the painful toil of our hands. I wonder, maybe Jacobed hopes the same as she looks at her beautiful son. Might God send salvation through this child? She determines to keep him alive. These are just the first two verses of our passage. And they are packed with tension. Maybe you can relate to the feelings here. Your troubles and concerns may be very different from Jacobed's, but maybe your questions are similar to hers. Can God's covenant promises prevail amid my storms? Will his hand of salvation keep me from sinking when I am hit with fierce troubles? Sisters, we will get closer to some answers as we move from verses 1 and 2 to verse 3, the ark. Let me read verse 3 for us. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with pitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Ladies, one thing that kids do very well is grow. I knew children before the pandemic. When I saw them after the, the pandemic, they were taller than me, which isn't hard to do. It's very easy to be taller than me, but nevertheless, they were taller than me. And so 
The day comes when Jacob's son is just too large and too active for her to hide. What would she do now? How would she protect him from Pharaoh's death threat? She decides to weave a basket. Verse 3 says that Jacobed made a basket of bulrushes and she dubbed it with pitumen and pitch. Friends, the word basket and pitch are meant to send us back to Genesis, to Noah's Ark. The author of Genesis is also the author of Exodus. And the Hebrew word he uses for basket here in verse 3 is the same used 28 times for the ark in Genesis 6. In other words, our author is alluding to Noah's ark in his description of Jacob's basket. Ladies, when her baby got too big for her to hide, Jacobed remembered God's former work of salvation. She considered Noah's ark a story that she, a descendant of Abraham and Noah, would have known. Jacobed had a good memory. She remembered the pattern of God's salvation in the days of Noah. God's ark that he provided for Noah had been the only means of safety through those waters of death. So she weaved a basket ark for her baby and covered it with pitumen and pitch. I'm imagining her by that Nile River that day. I'm sure her heart pounded in her chest as she placed her baby in that basket and set it loose into the Nile. I wonder if she whispered a prayer. May this story end with the deliverance granted to Noah. May God's covenant promises to Abraham's descendants prevail. Jacobet is in a hard position here, as I imagine her releasing that ark in the Nile. Her child was drifting away from her in the Nile River. She had hidden him for three months. But at this point in the story, all feelings of control are gone. All she can do is cast her every hope on the God of Israel. Sisters, maybe... Some of us are in a place like this. If you're like me, then maybe you are praying to God about some difficult things in your life. Maybe if you're like me, you've been praying for what feels like a really long time. And at this point, you are pretty sure that you have no real control in what is going to happen next. Sisters, let's be praying women. Let's keep on praying, but let's be praying women with good memories. Let's recall all the ways God has shown himself faithful in the past as we cast every hope on him today. We don't know the end of our stories, but we know that God is in control. And he is a God whose covenant promises prevail no matter the threat. Exodus 2, verses 4 to 9, will prove just that. There's an incredible plot twist coming in this story. Let me read for us Exodus 2, 4 to 9. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh 
came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. These verses introduce us to other characters in the story, right? For one, Jacobed wasn't alone by the Nile River that day. Uh, verse 4 mentions her daughter. Now, our passage doesn't give Miriam's age, but she is old enough to understand the threat Pharaoh's command posed to her newest brother. Ladies, uh, older sisters can be protective of younger siblings. Uh, my two daughters, I have a, an 11-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old daughter, and they prayed for years for a baby brother. I've already told the story to some of us at breakfast. They would be eating a their lunch or their snack. God, thank you for my food, and please send me a baby brother. <laughs> and so you can imagine how much they're loving this 18-month-old in our house right now. We just adopted him two weeks ago, by the way. They love their baby brother so much. They'll do anything to get his smile, right? They tease him sometimes, but they'll also do anything for him to smile. And I'm wondering if this was Miriam with the baby now drifting in the Nile. Perhaps Miriam was Jacobet's best assistant in those three months. She was hiding this baby. And now Miriam stood watching her brother float away. She was determined to know what would happen to him. She saw the basket approach Pharaoh's daughter. The princess had come to the Nile to bathe, and Miriam's brother was sailing directly into her hands. This was the daughter of the man who had commanded his people to drown Hebrew boys in the Nile. Big sister Miriam may have been struck with terror at her sight, who was more likely to obey Pharaoh's words than Pharaoh's daughter herself? The princess noticed the basket among the reeds and sent her servant to bring it to her. She opened it and she saw a crying child. Miriam heard the princess speak. This woman recognized her brother as a Hebrew. We can only guess at Miriam's feelings but the story takes a striking turn here. The princess, who should have been her father's champion, doesn't act the part. She takes pity on the crying baby in the basket. And like the Hebrew midwives, she would let this Hebrew boy live. Miriam must have seen the pity because she speaks up. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? The word, go, <laughs> sent her feet right to Jacobed with good news. Friends, God's name is not mentioned in our passage. And yet this plot twist boasts of God's rescue. It boasts of his salvation purposes. 
because the mother who set her infant in the Nile is paid with Pharaoh's money to receive him back. Pharaoh's daughter hires Jacobed as a wet nurse to feed and raise the boy until weaned. And so the crafty serpentine king is defeated again. And this time, a member of his own household, his own blood, his very daughter plays a hand. We began this narrative with a question. Can God's covenant promises withstand the greatest forces? The author of this narrative gives an emphatic yes. God can save his people from powerful enemies, even the threat of death itself. But maybe you're still wondering because you have your own storm. If that's the case, I want you to notice the identity of the baby in this story. The child is named in verse 10. And his identity authenticates the truth of this argument statement. Let me read verse 10 for us. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Ladies, the baby in this passage is Moses. He is the one preserved in Exodus 2, 1 to 10. And he is also the author of this book. He is telling the story. And he is telling that story to an audience. The first audience to hear this story is the wilderness wandering generation preparing to enter the promised land. Moses wants this group of people to know that they are led by a God whose covenant promises can be trusted because his purposes prevail no matter the, the threat that they will face before them. Moses' first audience was sure to face some tests and some storms on their journey to the promised land. And so Moses tells them a story. He points to the account of his own birth and rescue. He explains how his mother trusted him to the basket in the Nile. He adds how his big sister's intercession sent him back home to his Hebrew family. He gives them the details of how his life was preserved. Sisters, Moses would go back home. He would live openly with his parents, with Amram and Jacobed, until he's weaned, likely three years, three years of, uh, of age. Um, and if you've ever watched a baby grow, there's so many babies around here, I'm sure you have seen at least one child grow. You know that three years is a long time in baby world. Three years is a long time. These are formative years that bring so much growth and learning. Those years likely sealed Moses' identity as an offspring of Abraham. Hebrews 11, 24 to 25 says this, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This Moses of our passage is preserved alive to mediate the covenant between God and his people. This child saved from the threat of death will lead the exodus of Israel from their service, their hard labor to Pharaoh, to their knowledge, their worship, and their service of God. 
Moses shepherds Israel toward the promised land, that land that God promised to Abraham so long ago. God's covenant promises prevail, sisters. And Moses' identity as the child of this passage cements this point. And yet there's another child. There's another child that this narrative ultimately points to. And the threat that he comes to save God's people from, no other person, not even Moses, can accomplish. This distant baby is also born under the command of death. As we move from Exodus 2 to the Christmas story, it's almost Christmas after all, as we move from Exodus 2 to the Christmas story of Matthew 2, we find that there is another ruthless king. King Herod is governing Judea in a Roman-occupied Israel. He hears about the birth of a long-expected child, the true king of the Jews. And in fear, Herod searches for this baby to kill him. But God preserves this child. He preserves him in Egypt, the very place Moses is kept alive. And like Moses, this child, Jesus, is preserved to become a mediator between God and God's people. But unlike Moses, Jesus is a mediator of a far greater covenant. According to Hebrews 9.15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant sealed in his own blood. Sisters, Moses was saved through an ark. Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has become our ark. He alone is our shelter amid the waves of God's judgment. He is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He's the savior that faithful Israelite mothers and fathers longed for. He alone can crush the serpent, reversing the painful effects of the curse. In Jesus is the blessing God promised to Abraham, the one that was meant to spread to all the nations of the earth. Jesus is stronger than any storm you and I will ever face. He is a sure ark for those who trust in him amid the waves of trouble. We can cast our full weight on Jesus. He is more than able to keep us standing firmly rooted in hope. I could end my talk right here. That sounds like a good place to stop. And we would probably say hallelujah. We would clap our hands. Maybe we would sing. At least in my church, they would, they would do that. Um, <laughs> I could stop right here. But that might leave a looming question unanswered. I may perhaps maybe make someone think, okay, according to Nana, this passage says that Jesus is my ark amid the storms of life and that God's promises will always prevail so does that mean that my difficult situation will soon turn out just right? Is that what you're saying? It's a really good question that you're asking me. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know how your story will end. Those things that you are praying to God about, those things that I feel like I've been praying about for so long, I don't know what the ultimate answer will be. I don't know what the ultimate answer will be to the prayers that I'm praying for people that I love. 
when I get to this part of my message, I actually think of two women that I've been praying for. One of them is a sister who was diagnosed with cancer last year, and most of 2022 has been surgery after surgery. I am I'm praying for that plot twist for her story. I want to see that plot twist for her story, but I have to admit that ultimately I don't know how God will answer those prayers. And then there's another sister that I've prayed with for years, for years. We pray regularly every week together, and her, her story is not cancer. It's, it may not seem as dramatic, but it's just as important. We're constantly praying about conflict in her marriage. And lately, she feels burdened to the point where sometimes she feels depressed. Her hands are full, and life is spinning like a roller coaster that's just getting faster and faster. So we're praying for, for a plot twist for her, that God would answer, and, and God would help her, and God would sustain her. But I don't know how the story will continue. The truth, sisters, is that even if God answers exactly the way we want him to, even if he answers just the way we want him to answer, we still live in the wilderness before the promised land. We're very much like Moses' first audience in that, in that sense, right? We're not home yet. There is a home coming for us where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more storms raging around us, where there will, well, he will wipe away our tears, right? And there will be no more death and no more pain. But right now, we live in the wilderness, east of Eden, where there are thorns and thistles. So even if God answers the prayers for me and for you and for my friends, there might be another storm that comes in a year or two. And this passage actually points to that. You will see in verse 10 that Jacobet has to give up Moses a second time. We, we, we love that plot twist that happened when she received her three-month-old baby back. But there comes a day when he's perhaps three years old where she has to knock on the door of Pharaoh's daughter. And this three-year-old boy that she has nursed and kissed when he fell down and bathed and loved and taught and has gotten to know, she will give him to another woman. It says in verse 10, it says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. I'm sure that Jacobed returned home with one, one seat empty that day. It was probably a hard day for her. So dear sister, God doesn't promise us a world right now without storms. But he has promised his presence amid the storm. And he keeps his promises. They always prevail. How do I know? because that baby born at Christmas who was preserved to live would eventually die. He would hang on a tree more glorious than any tree in history. And he will face the storm of God's wrath on your behalf and on behalf of those he has redeemed. So my question is, do you trust that Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus? If not, pray for the grace to trust him. Let us pray for the grace to be Christian women with good memories. Let's remember the Savior 
who stands with us, unmoving, steadfast, enduring amid any storm. He can keep us firmly rooted in hope, whatever the threat. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your beautiful son. He is the son that was ultimately and is ultimately beautiful in your sight. We thank you for this Jesus who was born uh, under the curse, who, who came down to suffer with us and to take a storm that we will never face, the storm of your judgment. We look forward to journeying home with him. One day we will be with you until then. Make us faithful, trusting, steadfast women, trusting in a steadfast God. Abide with us, Lord, and show that you have loved us and that you are our hope, whatever the threat. Amen. Great. Thank you so much. That was, you know when you hear a sermon, you're like, that was the good stuff. That was <laughs> so good. Um, okay, so now what we're going to do, we're going to take like a 10-minute break. There's some snacks outside of the table if you have to use the restroom. We're going to actually switch up our schedule a little bit, and we're going to be going into our Q&A right after this short break. Um, Jerry's going to set up some note cards outside, uh, which will be perfect. So if you have questions, you know, maybe about uh, 